0: Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean
1: Kernikian. Say, I'll let you introduce yourself. Thank Thank you. I appreciate that. What do we do every week? Uh, You make me record a podcast with you. Right. And you enjoy it. I I enjoy it. It's mini law school. Yeah, it's mini law school because we all need little reminders. We all need to keep up with the law and we all need to know what's going on in the cases that we handle in the plaintiff's world. Um, You could find our firm online at kbklawyers.com. Uh, we try to do uh, this every week. We try to also do webinars. We try to keep information out there for people that may be interested. Do
0: interviews with exciting people. Which exciting, means, very. Not, not us, us. Not us, right? exactly. Not us.
1: Um, so yeah, if you have interesting cases you want to talk about, if you have an interesting subject you want to know more about, reach out to us. Many people do. Uh, surprisingly, not very many complaints about Brian, which is very none. surprising. We've never had a complaint unless you've none. hidden it from I it. wouldn't say none. So uh, today we're going to cover
0: insurance cases. We've picked four insurance cases. This really is 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes at the max uh, about recent decisions, um, whether you practice insurance or not. These are important cases to understand. They're important to understand insurance. I remember taking insurance in law school, and I remember thinking. Who I was thought, your
1: professor? Was, uh, it, was it Judge Heisman? Oh.
0: No, no, no. It was, it was uh, Dean Lauer, who eventually became uh, a very court judge here in California. And then um, left the bench and still has an affiliation with Loyola Law School, and he's a great guy, and he taught me insurance, and he's super bright. And I remember thinking at the time,
1: yeah, insurance, it's interesting.
0: I mean, I didn't know it was going to become a big part of my professional career, but it
1: should be something that every civil lawyer I was just going to about. say, it should be a required course. I know it's not on the bar, but it should be a required course if you're going to go into civil law, specifically civil litigation, especially on the plaintiff's side, even so, on the defense side. So briefly, what are the cases we're covering today? So today we're going to talk about four cases. First is going to be a case about how it's okay for your tenant to grow uh, weed in their house. No, it's never okay (laughs) for
0: your tenant to grow weed in your house.
1: It's about the duties of an insured and whether or not a a coverage is excluded if the insured didn't know that a tenant is doing something in their house. Uh, Next, we're going to talk about the genuine dispute doctrine. um, And that's an important principle if you're doing insurance work. Then we're going to talk about a form selection clause in an insurance contract. And lastly, we're going to talk about vertical versus horizontal exhaustion of insurance policies. And a
0: California Supreme Court case. That is a California
1: Supreme Court case.
0: So let's get started with our first case today. It's Mosley versus Pacific Specialty Insurance Company. This is a great case. It comes out of the 4th DCA. Uh, And the facts in this case are, as Sean stated, um, this couple had an insurance policy. It was a, a rental policy, meaning that they were the renters, not the rent. Not, they were the rentors, not the renters. Sure. Is that a
1: word? They were the landlords. Let's call it that. Is that easier? Maybe okay. that's easier. They owned a house. They owned a house. They were and renting they're... it out. They were the landlords. And what was their tenant doing? And their tenant was, was uh, cultivating a, a specific type of plant. Which has psychoactive properties.
0: Right. it was weed. He, he they were was growing, weed. growing marijuana in yeah, the house. And, and
1: just for personal use, right? One or two plants. Nope, they were because, watering it nope, every day. It was because nice it wasn't lady.
0: bad enough that he was growing marijuana in the house, but he was also stealing electricity from the electric company to power up the light and the heat
1: lamps. He had what the court describes as an energy intensive marijuana growing operation.
0: Right, right. So not Is a good a, idea. Did does this it,
1: explain why you want to rent a house from me? uh just i don't need windows i don't need anything else bad things happen to the
0: mosleys right right
1: uh so what happened uh, well
0: the electric that they were stealing caused a fire and the house burned down
1: and so they turned
0: to their insurance company and they said we're making a claim under insurance policy and the insurance company denied the claim because they basically had a farming operation exclusion so let's take that apart
1: they don't insure for any manufacturing production or operation, engaged in the growing of plants, the manufacture, production, operation, or processing of chemical, biological, animal, or plant materials. Right. So that's pretty specific stuff right there. Absolutely. Right? Don't yes. know if
0: this is standard in most insurance policies. This is not a mainstream insurance company. It's not like State Farm, but let's assume it is. But
1: it's an exclusion. So because it's an exclusion, that means what? The insurance company has the burden of establishing it. So keep that in mind. I know a lot of our listeners are interested in insurance and this is something we do. So that's the first layer here. Whenever an insurance company, insurance is, company has to
0: establish that yep. the exclusion applies. Now, there's no question there was quote-unquote, farming operations here and going on inside the house. But that isn't really what the case comes down to. The next thing we have to understand is insurance code section 2070 and 2071, the California insurance code, which is basically the basic fire coverage. So you have to have, if you have insurance in California and you're an insurance company, you offer fire insurance. It has to have basic standards.
1: Right, and you can literally pull up section 2071 or 2070, uh, both sections, and you can see the exemplar policy. It's a 165-line policy. comes from New York, and it's because insurance companies tried to screw around in the past. So legislatures across the country said – no, 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 we're not going to let you sell something. You call a fire policy and then dwindle away, chip away at the coverage by creating all these exclusions and little limitations. So read the language. You can see it there. And the coverage sold in California has to be equivalent at a minimum, minimum. To, that, to that language.
0: And, and what's important here is that the policy was not – the fire and the farming operations had nothing to do with the Mosleys. They didn't know about it. They had no reason to know about that this was going right. on in their home. Obviously, they they weren't the most attentive landlords, but they didn't know what was going on in the house right
1: yeah and and here to to in order to prevail, the insurance company had to establish that the Mosleys increased a hazard within their control, but they but they didn't they didn't even know that the hazard right. was so there's fair. a whole
0: host of cases where somebody other than the insured increased the hazard and it's not. Uh, attributed to the insured. It's not, it doesn't go back to the insured where the insured didn't know about it. And of course, that makes perfect sense because let's imagine this hypothetical for a second. If you had a policy that was issued and it was a fire policy and the fire policy said, we don't cover any arson caused by a third party. Well, that would completely obliterate the purpose of fire insurance. That's right? not
1: giving you fire coverage, exactly.
0: And and that's effectively exactly. what happened here is that they were trying to say that something that had nothing to do with the policyholder is being attributed to the policyholder and causing right. and but it
1: would be different if it said uh we don't cover fire caused by you, uh, where you increase the risk, and and you were growing weed in your in your garage. Much you know, to your that, chagrin, you've now right. found that out. You've <laughs> learned that, and right. so it really it's really going to affect things. But um, what's the other? There's another distinction that they draw that if if a wife had taken out the policy, wife that lives with the husband, and the husband was the one growing it, but the husband's not an insured under the policy, they'll be different because the insured there would presumably know. Right. That's why I tell my wife there's don't, actually don't go case, in the garage. There's actually don't go in the There's garage. actually
0: a case on point right. that says exactly yeah, that. Yeah. Now, the last little thing about this case, though, and it kind of leads into our next case, which is this was, as people often are wont to do, this case had a cause of action for breach of contract for failing to pay the insurance policy right, and a separate cause of action for insurance bad faith, breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. And what the court here said was we are reinstating the breach of contract cause of action. Um, they didn't breach the contract and obviously they have to pay the claim now. But, the court said, we are throwing out the bad faith. And the reason they're saying that is because they said, effectively, this is a genuine dispute about coverage. It was a legitimate argument that the insurance company had. And so right. as a result of that, the standard for bad faith in California is reasonable. Did they act unreasonably? And the court said, as a matter of law, they did not act unreasonably. So under what we call the, um, the genuine dispute doctrine, I will mention that there's a dissent I don't agree with the dissent. I think the dissent uh, extenuates the circumstances here, tries to find um, a reason for not covering it. But if you're interested, you could read the dissent. But since we're talking insurance bad faith... And, and genuine dispute. And genuine dispute, let's go to our next case, which is 501 East 51st Street, Long Beach, dash 10, LLC. That's the case. Let's just call it 501 East. Right. Versus Kookman Best Insurance Company Limited. So this is out of the second DCA. And the facts in this case are... Um, Uh, Anything other than straightforward, right?
1: Yeah, super interesting set of facts. Um, uh, The the plaintiff here owns a building that was built in, I believe, 1963. At some point, there is a pipe burst, uh, at some point between December 31st and January 2nd, uh, 2015 to 2016 in the span of a few days. So and as a result of that, it causes soil movement and it causes a shift in the foundation and the flooring gets ruined and there's a bunch of problems. So they make the claim. The insured makes the claim with the insurance company. Um, they hire their own. Expert, a uh, a contract or a, a geotechnical company called American Geotechnical, which we've actually used, and they're a reputable company, no dispute there. Um, and they go out and they do a limited geotechnical investigation, and they say that the water leak or the the water burst caused um, additional cracking and it caused uh,
0: movements in the uh, earth. Yeah, it was about a two hundred fifty thousand dollars claim that they were making. And Now, here's where I think the case gets is important that before we go into the specific facts of this case, we talk a little bit about the genuine dispute doctrine. So, the history of the genuine dispute doctrine is as follows, and it's not it hasn't been around for hundred years. It's probably been around for twenty five to thirty years, and the origin of it was in coverage, like in the last case that we just read. It, it has to do with there being a dispute about coverage. I say the policy says X. You say it says Y. We look at the facts and circumstances, boom. Um, The facts, though, had—what happened with the Genuine Dispute Doctrine is in the late 90s, early 2000s, it started bleeding over into fact experts in cases. So not just coverage. Right, just coverage. So it would be— an insurance company goes out and gets frankly a
1: whore. I can say that on the radio, can I? You can. We're not, we're not regulated. Yeah.
0: And no they, one's listening. They hire somebody who is gonna say exactly what they want them to say. They get exactly what they want out of them. They turn to the insured and they say, Well, our expert says it isn't broken. Our expert said it wasn't caused by a covered loss. And then the carrier was getting out of jail, literally getting away – not the breach of contract. But, but the getting, getting out of bad faith, getting out and, of bad and, faith. That's, and punitive and that's, damages.
1: And that means a lot because, yeah, punitive damages, attorney fees, uh, non-economic damages, extra contractual damages. They're getting away, away with all of that. Saying that they act reasonably because there was a genuine dispute. And it wasn't now, something created by statute, was it? The absolutely not. Doctrine. It came yeah.
0: from the cases that had to do with coverage. So in this case, they go out and they get a bunch of experts. And the, the facts are you know, pretty complicated here because they go back and forth. They also have a lawyer potentially giving advice. Um, and what happened, though, with the genuine dispute doctrine in the last 20 years is it became very disfavored because we're able to show that the experts – are just captive experts that they just have nothing but a stream of business from the insurance industry, specific generally, and this particular insurance company. And here I looked at
1: the names in the case. And I said, well, these are kind of you know company store um, uh, experts that they went right. and got. So they go the uh, the insurance company, in response, goes, okay, well, thank you for your claim. We're going to go out and hire our own experts. So they go out and hire JS Held. Who I think we can say with confidence is, uh, is another whore company. Well, let's the, just say alleged. Yeah, let's just the, say alleged whore. Many say, many say bad things about them. And, uh, but many somebody say that, that we've whores. routinely seen
0: hired Absolutely. by insurance companies Absolutely. to represent their interests.
1: Who come back and say, the first time around, they come back and say, well, maybe the water water supply line did actually cause some problem. It exacerbated it. It's hard to tell whether or not it was pre existing or how much of it was pre existing. Then the insurance company retains a law firm, a, I'd say, rep Absolutely. uh, Daniel Spine Israel. And they have actually one of the named partners there, Mr. Israel, write up a memo after looking at the report. And he says, I think this is covered unless further investigation can show that the damage can be segregated or the damage was not caused at once by the pipe burst, and it was pre-existing. So what did the insurance company do then? Go out and hire more whores. More, Moyle alleged? Uh, yeah, just members, people who many people call whores. Uh, Nino and Moore is who they hire. The right, and around. they also,
0: they they got a geotechnical and environmental service consultants, and they came yeah. back with a report now and said, nope, it's all uh, it's all attributed to not covered causes.
1: So they kept paying people until they got what they wanted to hear. Yeah, and
0: apparently there's even evidence that there was a memo that said, we need you to prepare a report, something along the lines of, to deny coverage, right? Right. And
1: guess what happened? They went back, they gave that to Mr. Israel, and he said, yeah, there shouldn't be coverage here. Okay, so here's where I don't understand the logic of
0: the plaintiff's lawyers in the case. Um, At that point, what I would have done is I would have got my experts to come back and opine differently, and I would have spent significant time— Doing discovery into the background of these experts to prove, as Sean has alleged, that they're whores you've, you've and alleged. show that they've that they have consistently said worked for insurance companies. They've consistently found that there's no coverage as a result of their work. That's how they're staying busy. That's a, we all know that. Everyone knows that these people that work for insurance companies only stay employed because they tell the insurance companies what they want to hear, and so consequently, this is where I don't understand the case. They they take it on a summary adjudication motion on the genuine dispute doctrine to get rid of the bad faith claim, right? Yeah, and the court buys it. Right. The court buys it. Okay. And you know the Court of Appeal
1: affirms it. I mean,
0: but but it's more than that, it's the plaintiff dismissed their claim for breach of contract,
1: yeah, and, and then after even, once once the court buys it and and gets rid of that, the plaintiff dismisses their claim for breach of contract, and then it goes up on appeal.
0: Yeah, I'm always care- uh, always careful to say what I say about uh, anything about our you know fellow lawyers out there, but it just makes my head scratch. I, I, what I would do in a situation like this is I get plenty of evidence to demonstrate that in fact the experts were captive. I'd show that I get my own experts to show why they were completely wrong, and then um, either the genuine dispute doctrine goes away. Or it's a question of fact for the jury. But be that as it may, that's that case. Let's go on with the next sad case, really sad case. This is
1: Nicolette Lewis versus Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. Comes out of the Ninth Circuit. Very sad set of facts. Um, It starts out with a tragic fire that occurred Um, I'm assuming somewhere in Sonoma County, Um, and the plaintiffs here sued. uh, The plaintiffs are a family, and one of the sisters, one of the twin sisters got burned really bad. So did the other sister and the parents um, using some sort of – I'm assuming it was some type of a heater or something like that that had gas in it. And uh, they got injured. They turned around and sued the company that manufactured the product, and the company didn't answer. Uh, the company, by the way, is an Australian company, but they got they sued them in state court. Company didn't answer, so they got uh, awarded a judgment in excess of forty five million dollars, and subsequently filed bankruptcy. However, they had an insurance company; they had Liberty Mutual that had issued a liability policy that would cover potentially injuries like this.
0: Now, before you get to the the meat of this, let's talk about Insurance Code Section eleven five eighty. So, Insurance Code Section eleven five eighty says that if you get a judgment against an insured, once you get that judgment, you can stand into the shoes of the insured and pursue the case directly against the insurance company for that amount of judgment.
1: So these plaintiffs stand in the shoes of the insured, the manufacturer of this product, and go after uh, Liberty Mutual. And there's another insured code section that we got to look into. It's 678.1D, Uh, which says that if an insurer doesn't give uh, 60 days notice of a material change in a policy— then the original policy the previous policy continues for 60 more days. And Super why is that important, important here? Because because there was one Liberty Mutual policy in effect that provided coverage for this type of injury. And then a month or two later, a new policy kicks in. A month or two after this incident happened, a new policy kicks in that specifically wouldn't have covered this injury because the product didn't have a flame guard or something like so that. So the the um, the real and,
0: dispute in this case, the real insurance dispute in this case is going to be which policy applies.
1: Right whether or not Liberty Mutual gave notice of this change Because at least
0: for the purpose of our discussion, if it's the later policy, no coverage. If it's the earlier policy, coverage.
1: Yeah, and you need uh, insurance code section 678.1 to make that argument successful. And factually, it seems like the plaintiffs in the SART case have a good argument that they didn't comply with that insurance code section. Yeah, they do. I, I believe they do. So they sue the insurance company. Case gets removed to federal court, and the insurance company argues for nonconvenience, nonconvenes. That's right. Right. Remember that from Latin. Right. And uh, did
0: you take Latin at Armenian school?
1: No, no, we didn't. OK. Took Just be curious. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So and then and, and they argue that there's a forum selection clause in this insurance policy that calls for a forum of Australia. And the court ultimately agrees and throws it out and, and says, go to Australia. So, I,
0: I mean, this case really outraged me when I read it. And the reason it did is because Australia has very different laws. In fact, they don't have that insurance code section. Now, right. the court, I think, does sort of um, gymnastics to try to get through that and say,
1: well, we would have had to apply Australian law anyways. Why?
0: I don't yeah. understand.
1: Yeah. So so the plaintiff makes three arguments, and here's how they address all of them. the court, addresses all of them. First, the plaintiff uh, contends that they're not signatory, so they're not bound by the form selection clause. I agree with the reason the court threw this one out. The court said, you step into the shoes. It's insurance code section Brian talked about. Okay. Uh, Second, they argue that even if it applies, enforcement would be, would violate California's strong public policy codified in 678.1 and that's where I part ways with the court because you need that code section and it's a very important code section if a unsuspecting insured doesn't have notice of a change in the policy why the hell are you going to enforce that change in the policy if they reduce coverage and they didn't tell you that they're reducing coverage why would you be bound by the terms of that policy so that's an important code section and the way that the court deals with this and they say that you you need a you need a Statute that clearly states such strong public policy in order for us to enforce it and disregard a forum selection clause and they say nothing on the face of section 678.1 indicates that the statute embodies such a strong policy and then to add insult to injury they say but for forum selection clauses we have a strong public policy favoring you know uh, ad- 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 adhering to forum selection clauses so I found that really disingenuous just because 678one does doesn't ha- doesn't have some proclamation in the beginning that says this is important to to yeah, the people the of the state. Yeah. yeah. Uh we're not kind of we're not going to enforce it here. We're not worried. Australia has a legal system. Like they they're, they're good. you'll be okay. Just go over there. Um, so, I, I found so that kind of offensive. My
0: my couple comments on this case really surround the fact that first of all, I think that this was in the Ninth Circuit and the the easiest thing the Ninth Circuit could have done under these facts and circumstances is to certify the question to the California Supreme Court for further consideration. Cuz it is an important issue. Exactly what you just said. It's an important issue to consumers in California. It's important to understand the coverage. There have been recent decisions in the California Court of Appeal that involves these foreign selection clauses in an asbestos case involving insurance. That's my first comment. My second comment is plaintiff lawyers. This explains why you don't want to be in federal court. Federal court bad, state court good. And maybe there was nothing these lawyers could have done about it. I'm sure they're fine lawyers and they did everything they could for the clients.
1: I'm outraged by the decision. In fact, there was a – I just noticed that I highlighted one of the footnotes here that specifically says – this is a court saying if for purposes of this appeal, we will assume that the Lewises, the plaintiffs here, would not prevail under claims if Australian law controls which policy applies. They're acknowledging that that these people are going to get screwed. You're done. Yeah, it's just wild. And there were other
0: alternative means. Okay, our last case, which we talk about how great California cases are, courts are for for the insurance cases, proves my point. It's a California Supreme Court case. I'll explain to you later what the California Supreme Court is,
1: Sean. That's in Washington.
0: Nope. It is called Montrose versus Spirit Court. This is yet another Montrose case. If you're an insurance nerd like us, you know that there's many of these cases that come down. Just the very basic facts, and we're going to really cut to the chase here because it's it's such a difficult um, issue to understand. We'll just simplify it and go to the to the meat of the potatoes. But um, Montrose operated this this facility in Torrance. It's a horrible contamination. They site. made DDT, the pesticide, right? And they've yeah. they've already spent over a hundred million dollars fixing it. They're probably going to spend another hundred million dollars or more to fix it to decontaminate it. You know, this all took place back in the dark days before people actually realized that you could hurt the environment like where we are now, where people have completely enlightened.
1: That's a hoax. That's a hoax.
0: So the issue in this case is many, many years of insurance policies. And the first thing you have to understand is what's called continuous trigger, which means the California's already adopted long ago a rule that said that if you are on the risk or the loss at any time that any aspect of the loss occurs – you can be your insurance policy can be liable for all of it, right? That's yeah. number one. So that's already decided. The question here was that these were multiple years of liability insurance, and multiple policies that were triggered, and, and multiple layers, and multiple layers. So you have primary layer, and then you have multiple layers of excess above it.
1: And, and just so quick primer: what does that mean? Primary and excess. Primary is the first policy, the most expensive policy
0: you buy. It it comes in first, and then you have stacked on top of that other layers of coverage. So you might have a million-dollar primary policy that's going to cover the first million dollars to cover defense costs, and then you might have five millions in excess, and then ten in excess of five, and then twenty in excess of in. And,
1: and it's pretty it, straightforward when you have a single incident in time, one incident, you know, multiple layers of policies. They're just all what we call vertically stacked. You you uh, you eat up the first million dollars. You go to the five to ten, you know, or the one uh, two to five range. So that's pretty straightforward. But what's happening here, Brian?
0: Well, what's happened here is there's multiple policies. Policies are exhausting. They're running out of money in other words. And what the court basically holds is that they they find a rule of vertical exhaustion, right? Yeah. And continu- yeah. continuous injury. And where all the primary insurance has already been exhausted, the policy language here would permit an insured, meaning the policyholder, to access any other excess policy for indemnification. Yeah,
1: the, the, the term that I like that the court uses here is elective stacking. So just a picture in your head, um, you have multiple primary policies spanning a number of years so you have a long bar that goes horizontally and if all of those are eaten up this this ru- this decision ultimately says that You can go up to any of the other ones that are stacked on top of that first layer. You can choose which year to go to. Now, that doesn't, and the insurance company was arguing the opposite. The insurance company was saying you need to exhaust everything within that year, all of the lower ones within that year, in order to go up. Right. And they focused on the language in these
0: policies that that use the word other insurance, that there's other insurance available, other insurance. And so they said because it's not defined, you can go and get any other insurance. to to cover this. You don't right. have to go horizontally. You can go vertical.
1: Right. You don't have vertical. to. You don't have to exhaust the that same entire hor- horizontal bar. You can go up as long as you've used it for for that year. You can electively stack however you want. And but but there isn't you know no recourse for the insurance company. They're not right. getting totally screwed here. They can then turn around to another insurance company on that same level and or or on the lower level that has not been exhausted and try to indemnify from them. Right.
0: That's right. And right. and what's important. Here is the policy. The case focuses on the policy holder and it focuses on the rights of the policy holder. And what the court ultimately says is look, insurers, you may have rights against each other, go for it, have at it, but in the process, don't screw the insured. I don't think right. they use those exact words.
1: Right, well, they're a little bit more eloquent than that, but that—that that well, is the they gist. They are of it. the California. That really Court. is the gist of it, and I think that's why this case is important. So, if you have like a big monster case that has multiple policies stacked on top of each other, this is an important case to look at. Montrose Chemical Corp. Um, and if that is an issue you're running into, we'd be happy to talk to you about that and try to advise you in the background. So that's all we got
0: um, today. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening. We appreciate it. This was our insurance episode. We'll have another one of these in a few weeks. Sean, where can they find us and how can they complain about you?
1: They can find us here in downtown. They could come straight into the office and they could march right into No, they can find us online at kbklawyers.com and you can find us on most social media platforms and you can find a podcast on iTunes and Spotify. So subscribe to us, rate us, send us your comments and complaints and uh, thanks for tuning in.